You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 12th of August, 2019, on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. The simple solution for the authorities might just be to clamp down and to stop it happening. And in a small kind of way, that can work. But actually, you also renew the anger if you're doing that. Joining me for a longer look at the day's big stories on our news panel are Steve Crawshaw, Policy Director at Freedom From Torture and the author of several books on political protest, and Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Guardian and The Independent. We'll also look at the latest from Hong Kong and discuss recently installed British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's attempt to steer the conversation away from Brexit by going all law and order. Plus... It's stepping into bricks and mortar territory. Do I want an experience on my laptop, though? I'm not convinced. Our fashion editor looks at the need for retailers to shake up the online shopping experience. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. With me are Steve Crawshaw and Mary Dijewski. And we'll start in Russia, which over the weekend hosted what appeared to be the largest opposition rallies since at least 2011. Reports suggest that 60,000 people turned out in Moscow, an impressive number given inhospitable weather and even less welcoming police who have arrested hundreds of protesters in recent weeks. The major rally on Saturday was officially authorised, but there were further detentions elsewhere in the city. And Russia's media regulator Roskomnadzor has asked Google to remove videos of protests from YouTube, a demand which will nigh certainly ensure that the videos receive a much wider audience. Um, Mary, first of all, do you get the sense that the reasons for these protests have expanded? It's very, very interesting because I find it extremely hard to read because people are making comparisons with 2011-2012, which was the last sort of season of big demonstrations, which were specifically directed against fraudulent elections and against Putin in person, because that was around the time when he said that he was um, suddenly um, running for president again. Um, this time around, I get the sense that there is a wider sense of unease and that it's gone beyond, that the, the protests of 2011-2012, were largely seen as um, the new middle class, the new young professionals. Um, This time around, it seems to have gone more broadly. And also, even though they're focused on Moscow and the particular complaint is about um, Moscow elections, nonetheless, you get the impression that there is quite a mood of... um, general um, dissatisfaction across the country, um, often about local issues, um, but which reflects a broader unease, um, whether it can actually coalesce in something much bigger. That is the big question I have, because it's not actually the 2011-2012 demonstrations that I go back to. It's the 1990-1991 demonstrations in Moscow and um, St. Petersburg, which were enormous and which really were grassroots and middle class 
and working class protests. So I sort of think there's a bit of a way to go before this sort of demonstration is a real threat to Putin. Well, Steve, what do you make of the way the authorities have responded? Obviously, they, they came down pretty hard, at least in previous weeks. There were hundreds and hundreds of people arrested. Um, this weekend, of course, they've permitted or authorised a demonstration. Are they still trying to figure this out themselves? I think in the way they are, it's the situation that you get so often with protests in different places is that the simple solution for the authorities might just be to clamp down and to stop it happening. And in a small kind of way that can work, but actually you also renew the anger if you're doing that. Um, I, like like Mary, both of us both studied in Russia and, and both worked there as, as, as journalists during the Soviet era. And it is very interesting. There you had a very clear repressive structure, which mm. gradually weakened a bit. And as it weakened, people pushed more and, and demanded more change and the whole system collapsed. As Mary says, we're not kind of, it doesn't feel we're at a tipping point, but Russia is incredibly hard to predict in some ways. I remember I was there when I was working for Amnesty International at that time. I was um, in a conference with opposition types and dissident types um, in 2011, spring 2011. It was to do with Andrei Sakharov, the great Soviet dissident, and a memorial event. And all of the people there were so depressed, saying we can't manage to get people to be on the street at all. People don't care at all. No one cares. We're going absolutely nowhere. And barely six months after that, we saw the biggest protests that have been. And it's very interesting that mixture of the corruption has been a big issue and that's triggered a lot of things, but also a sense like I should be able to have these choices. And the younger generation is coming out and saying, like, why can't I have these choices? So there's basic things are definitely there. I think there's another aspect too, um, which again makes it so difficult to read. Um, it's interesting and, uh, as you said, counterproductive probably, um, that the authorities are objecting to um, streaming protests. Um, well, that, that, I mean, that's that's a very old media. school Soviet attitude there. Well, we can, we well, can just is, pretend this isn't happening. But it also illustrates how in a way, um, power has shifted, how social media makes an enormous difference to these sort of things. Because in the past, even when you go back to 2011, 2012, um, the ease with which people can now basically be summoned to the streets, they can be shown what's going on now this minute, they can be told exactly where it is. Now, this hasn't been possible until very recently. And that shifts the balance, uh, it's the balance of power, I think, very considerably. Um, and while the authorities, I mean, I, I don't think there's the slightest chance that objections to social media are going to take this sort of thing um, off the off the websites. Nonetheless, um, you can see why they would want to do that because I think the, the, the balance of power really has shifted. Well, Steve, further on this, I mean, fairly obviously absurd edict uh, by uh, the Russian media regulator that Google must remove this footage from YouTube, uh, Russian authorities are also making various harumphing noises about Google interfering in Russia's domestic politics, which one might argue is a bit rich coming from Russian authorities. But... Um, is that potentially the basis for a a wider crackdown against tech giants, which are, of course, overwhelmingly uh, American and very certainly not Russian? 
It is possibly, but I think it would really come back to to bite them that younger generations, especially not only, but younger generations are so used to that. We saw to take, I mean, a very different example, but in Egypt was really interesting that to some extent the social media had helped to stoke the protests in 2011 that eventually um, unseated Mubarak and a number of things in the months previous, but also during the protests when Facebook was actually, or when social media were closed down mm. in general, they wanted to stop people going on the streets. That acted as an interesting trigger that people were more angry than they had been, didn't have that knowledge you might get from social media, but like, we're so used to this, we're not going to have this happen. So they can try and do it, but I do feel it's a kind of sign of weakness. One of the things with Putin's Russia in recent years has been, it sat there quite complacently, and in its own terms has been right to be complacent, that it hasn't really faced challenges. The opposition has been absolutely all over the place. People demanding different changes have been in different kind of spaces, if you like. And I think the fact they're trying to take these or suggest these radical uh, steps is for me definitely a sign of weakness. This is Monocle's House View. We'll get back to the discussion in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. American National Security Advisor John Bolton has told UK officials President Donald Trump wants to see a successful exit for Britain from the European Union and hopes to offer support in the way of a free trade agreement between the allies. Bolton is in London for two days of talks where he is expected to articulate the Trump administration's policies, including Washington's hard line on Huawei and Iran. South Korea has said it will revoke Japan's special trade status in a tit-for-tat response to a similar proclamation by Japan. The trade tension comes after a deterioration in bilateral ties following a South Korean ruling that Japan should pay compensation for war crimes committed during the Second World War. Eid festivities in India-administered Kashmir have been muted amidst a ban on large gatherings and a communications blackout in place for an eighth consecutive day. Indian officials say Muslim worshippers have been allowed to attend prayers at local mosques, although not at the main mosque in the capital. On Friday, Indian troops reportedly opened fire and used tear gas to disperse protesters. India has denied the protests took place. Thousands of troops were deployed to Kashmir last week as India announced it was revoking the territory's autonomy and rules that prevent outsiders from buying land. And just as the first Caspian economic forum has opened in Turkmenistan's coastal city of Awaza, the country's president has reappeared after widespread reports of his death. President Kurban Guli Berdi Mukhamedov was on hand to meet Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev today, his first public appearance since widespread reports he had died of kidney failure spread across Russian-language media last month. That news was hard to verify, as Reporters Without Borders says Turkmenistan is the worst country in the world for press freedom, worse even than North Korea. Officials from Russia, Iran, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan are meeting this week to debate how best to split Caspian oil wealth. Those are some of the stories we're following today. Now back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Mary Dijewski and Steve Crawshaw. And sticking with the theme of persistent protests against somewhat baffled authoritarians, let's look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong Airport has been occupied most of this past weekend, necessitating the cancellation of hundreds of flights. In a possibly significant and hopefully not ominous development, China has started including the word terrorism in its official responses to the demonstrations. Elsewhere, in unsubtle psychological warfare, Hong Kong's police have conducted a demonstration of their water cannon purchased after the umbrella protests of 2014, but never previously deployed. Are we seeing China here winding up for a major crackdown? Well, I think China is um, speaking very loudly and being very demonstrative. Um, And so far, and possibly um, for the duration, is actually refraining from any direct intervention. And I I think China has an enormous problem here because it understands the ostracism and the the way that it alienated the rest of the world by Tiananmen Square. And yet it's hard to see anything in a way less than the use of military force that China could see as being effective if Hong Kong were to run out of control, if law and order were to break down in Hong Kong completely. What is China going to do? Um, Now, I think for the time being, they are going to that um, they're going to stand a bit aside. Um, but when you have, you know, as your last interview said, you know, you've got the Hang Seng index falling, you've got the airport blocked, you've got flights cancelled, um, potentially you've got the economy in meltdown, tourism, and it's not a big deal for. Um, for Hong Kong, but um, shopping from from mainland China and the rest, you know, that is part of the Hong Kong economy. Um, what happens if all that starts to fall to pieces? Um, the demonstration of water cannon, I mean, you know, it looks like a sort of, in a way, a sort of comic intervention, an attempt to intimidate, saying, you know, we've got this on our side, we could use it. Um, so it's ominous. But so far, I think there are dilemmas for China as there are for Hong Kong. Uh, Steve, looking at this uh, as a political protest uh, about which you have a subject about which you've written extensively, um, leaving aside whatever the rights and wrongs of the situation may be, is taking the airport strategically clever if you're running a protest of this sort, or is it not? Because as as Mary suggests, it's it is kind of unignorable. This is one of the world's busiest airports. It is now officially closed. Nothing is flying in or out uh, today. It's the kind of thing that at some level obliges authorities to take some sort of fairly drastic action. And and also just thinking of it logistically, not that I'm overwhelmed with sympathy for the authorities in this particular instance, but you, you can't start firing things like tear gas and baton rounds in an enclosed environment like that without running the risk of extremely serious injury or worse. Yes, I, I guess that's true. As you say, unignorable is right. And often protests will want to do something which forces the authorities to sit up. Um, I think, I mean, it has actually had a, a high degree of support. One thing I think that the protesters need to be aware of, the, the authorities are really between a, a rock and a hard place, partly in ways that Mary has described. But the protesters themselves, 
you always want to have more and more people supporting your mm. cause, not fewer. And so the danger if you're closing an airport and if lots of people are wanting to travel, you it's just like, start yeah, to I annoy kind of people. Support you, but yeah. I really wish I could get out of this place. And I think that's also true of violence. We've actually seen pretty little violence on the protesters' side. Overwhelmingly, it's been from the authorities' side. But I think if that were to change, that would be dangerous in in many ways. I think, however, you know, it goes back to what we've discussed before. I think the real rock and hard places for the, the Chinese authorities themselves because their temptation is still like, let's just crack down on these things. And they've done these threatening videos with machine guns and now the stuff with um, water cannon and so on and so forth. But... They, they don't know how to deal in the ordinary sense with protest. And obviously, people are going to be looking at the mainland if you do start to give way. My own memories from so 30 years ago this year was the Tiananmen Massacre, which was also the year of East European revolutions. And East Germany was one of the most hardline of the East Europeans. They publicly praised Tiananmen Square. And when a few months later there were protests and they publicly threatened basically to do a repeat of Tiananmen, they thought they would win. That was the moment, in a sense, at which the Berlin Wall a month later came down because people were so angry at the idea that they might be shot at and killed. They went, enough already. So, hard times for Beijing. OK, well, finally, on our news wrap-up, let's look at the United Kingdom, where the recently installed Prime Minister Boris Johnson is attempting to steer the conversation away from Brexit and whatever responsibility he may end up bearing for the spam riots tentatively scheduled for November 1st. In an almost amusingly transparent appeal to the hanging and flogging tendency of the Conservative Party base, Johnson has gone all law and order, promising 10,000 new prison places, possibly to accommodate especially exuberant spam rioters, and an expansion of police stop and search powers. Um, Mary, there isn't going to be an election, we keep being told. What date's it going to be? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm part of the um, faction that would say an election is going to be earlier rather than later, and I would think that it could be well before the 31st of October. In other words, it would be before rather than after um, Brexit, do or die, as our new Prime Minister says. Um, So that's my gamble, which may obviously be completely wrong. Um, (laughs) Boris Johnson may serve out his his term. Um, We don't know. Um, But I do think that it's very, very interesting that from the moment Boris Johnson took office, he has been campaigning um, and he's been campaigning not just on Brexit. He's been campaigning up and down the country. He's been campaigning on the issue of the union, the union of the United Kingdom. He has been campaigning, as you say, very transparently um, on law and order. And he's talked about very. He's talked about um, you know, lifting um, limits on um, scientists um, wanting to come and work in the UK. He's he's been addressing all these things, which are directed at, on the one hand, particular interest groups. On the other hand, it does look awfully like um, an election campaign. Uh, Steve, on on the stop and search thing in particular, this has become. We should explain to international listeners a particular issue here in the United Kingdom because of. Well, not merely a perception, but a reality that it was overwhelmingly targeted at black people. I think it's it's fair to say that people who resemble the three of us in this studio have no particular fear of being stopped and searched by the Met as we go about our business. Um, Also, various studies have shown that it doesn't actually make all that much difference to crime, or if it does, uh, then the crime the difference it makes is not terribly big. Uh, Why does it remain obviously popular? 
apart from obviously with the people who get stopped and searched. Well, yes, I mean, you said in your introduction, this is amusingly transparent, which is kind of exactly right, really. What's really weird to all of us, I guess, this is not just in the UK, we're seeing it in the, in the US and elsewhere, but how facts kind of no longer matter. I mean, we saw it both in the Brexit campaign, and, and that's just objectively the case, um, that in order to be persuaded still of the arguments, fundamentally, you have to look away from some of the facts and the way they've been, been um, presented. And the same is true of this. If you say something loud enough, Donald Trump says lots of things which are self-evidently not true, but he brings enough of the base with him. So fundamentally, all of this is still campaigning. The really puzzling thing to me is kind of where Boris Johnson himself sees himself and the country being in, say, a year's time, because none of the things that he says actually really makes sense and quite hang together. So maybe he thinks, oh, I'll just have had a jolly, you know, six months time in Downing Street and I'll go off and write my memoirs. But there isn't really a sense of a game plan. His predecessor, Theresa May, talked about the magic money tree and the not existing. He appears to have the largest magic money tree in the world, really, which he keeps plucking out for the voters and hoping they won't quite examine the detail, I guess. But I think there is a point in going after, as it were, the law and order agenda, because I think that, um, first of all, this is... This is a subject um, and an area where he can differentiate himself very clearly from Jeremy Corbyn and Labour. Um, and it will be quite difficult um, for the Labour Party, if there is an election, um, to contest him on this particular score. Because you're asking the Labour Party to say we're heartily in favour of exactly. knife crime. And the other thing, I think, is that the there is a sense, and it's a sense that, I mean, I sort of share and if I share it then that probably means that it's quite pervasive across um, not just the people immediately affected by this but people who are not um, which is that there is a lack of police on the streets there is a sense of impunity about what people can get away with um, and it's not just the reporting of knife crime it's the reporting of burglaries that aren't followed up, it's the reports of muggings in the streets, it's the reports of you know people like me who simply do not see any policeman from one day to the next or if they do it's getting out of their car which is parked illegally outside the local <laughs> convenience store where they're collecting their lunch walking past evidence of several low-level crimes and misdemeanors on their way and doing nothing now you know if i feel like that the odds are that this is actually not a bad campaign pitch, especially not for a Tory leader. It's about perceptions, clearly. I mean, Glasgow, famously, uh, in the UK, has actually addressed knife crime in a much more sensitive way, and that's worked well. I think the interesting thing is that Corbyn, despite all the problems with Johnson, it's very unclear whether Corbyn would be strong enough to win against even him, which is pretty remarkable. Thank you to my guests on the show today, Mary Dijewski and Steve Crawshaw. Coming up next, the latest view from Monocle's editorial floor. We've been thinking a lot about food at Monocle, particularly as we applied the finishing touches to our brand new drinking and dining directory, which is on newsstands now. Within the magazine's 200-odd glossy pages, we've surveyed our 50 favourite places to eat in our restaurant awards, plus dispatched hungry reporters in six continents. They came back with food scoops from the quirky, think iceberg cowboys in Newfoundland, to the thoughtful, cue the food folk looking to revive the Algarve's package holiday image with something tastier. All before plans of relocating to Ojai in California, plus a survey of Vienna's city vineyards and mulling over how to host at home. Oh, and did we mention the 30-plus recipes we've laid on? 
ours is an opportunity-orientated glimpse at the world of food, where restaurateurs, bakers and distillers done good offer us their tips for jacking in the day job and starting a food-focused endeavour. We also hone in on the markets and department stores that are reviving brick-and-mortar retail and in which battalions of smaller producers are creating better products, plus doing so transparently and with a lot less waste. For all that and more, you can buy Monocle's drinking and dining directory, and we suggest you should. It's on newsstands, or you can subscribe at monocle.com today. Finally today, a new addition to the Monocle 24 lineup. You probably already know about our daily email bulletin, the Monocle Minute. Well, from today, you can read it and listen to it. A new audio version of the Monocle Minute will be arriving daily at 6am London time. Episode number one is already waiting for you. Now, with a preview of today's edition, here's Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters, looking at efforts to replicate the bricks-and-mortar shopping experience online. Last week, I went shopping on my laptop. But I wasn't presented with the usual neat rows of clothes shot against a white backdrop. Instead, I toured a yoga studio, scrolling about a room filled with women stretching and dressed in new season workout gear, before heading to a Manhattan apartment where my cursor hovered over round velvet cushions and bronze floor lamps. Feeling claustrophobic, I then headed for the mountains, where models stood by a dirt track in the latest hiking apparel. So what was I doing? Browsing the new e-commerce website by Obsess, a startup specialising in virtual reality e-commerce. It was founded in 2017, but has mostly focused on B2B services, setting up websites for brands including Tommy Hilfiger and Levi's. Now it's doing its own thing. The company is backed by investors including Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, and its founder, Neha Singh, wants to propel e-retail forwards. She's been quoted as saying, nobody has tackled changes to the e-commerce experience in 25 years. She wants to make it fun. The use of virtual reality technology in e-commerce is an interesting proposition. But I tend to think that e-commerce and physical retail work best when each one emphasises its unique attributes for e-commerce, convenience and speed, and for physical retail, engaging experiences. Obsess is striving to turn online shopping from a quick purchase into an experience. It's stepping into bricks and mortar territory. Do I want an experience on my laptop though? I'm not convinced. For Monocle, I'm Jamie Waters. Thank you, Jamie. A comment there from today's edition of the Monocle Minute, which you can access either from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Head to monocle.com slash minute to find out more. That's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Yolin Goffan and Louis Allen. Our studio managers were David Stevens and Steph Changu. Coming up at 1900, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture with host Rob Bound. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London, that's 1300 in Toronto. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.